are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White, and joining me today, as always, is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Jeff, and you? I'm doing great. Uh, this is our uh, Happy New Year podcast, so welcome to 2019. It, uh, you know, 2018, we hardly knew ye. <laughs> um, but I think what's kind of interesting is that, um, look, it's that time of year when everybody wants to talk about uh, New Year's resolutions and and uh, trend predictions for the new year and act uh, like there's a bunch of certainty uh, and a clearer lens through which they're seeing the new year. And I... I, th- I guess what is exciting me about this uh, podcast and, and, and our guest today is that we're not going to try to predict anything, <laughs> um, and we're not going to act with any certainty whatsoever. We're just going to... How's that any different than normal? Yeah. Yeah, that's a point. But I think this is one that may be more interesting, and the one thing that will make it different than normal is that it's the first one of 2019. Very true, very true. Um, so today, joining us today, all the way from Los Angeles, is Christina Hawley, who goes by Z. Um, and she is the founder and host of the Art of Manufacturing podcast. Also runs a, a really interesting uh, web-based show where she interviews people um, on Make It in LA, which is an initiative of the Los Angeles Mayor's Office, uh, which is very interesting. And uh, you know, promoting manufacturing in LA and everything that's going on there. And also the um, first creator of the TEDx series of conferences mm-hmm. hosted that as well. Pretty impressive. Pretty cool. Um, Welcome, Z. Thanks very much for joining us on the program. And I have to say, you know, because we are Canadian, we're going to have to call you Zed. (laughs) Okay, if you have to. It's great to be on the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, Z. Talk to us a little bit about uh, your your background. Just introduce our listeners uh, to you a bit and give us a a sense of what, uh, what is happening at Make It in L.A. (laughs) <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I, I like to think of myself as a champion of undiscovered innovators. <laughs> and that's been something I've been doing for uh, well over, gosh, 15 years now. But I originally started, I'll tell you about that in a moment, but I started as an engineer uh, at MIT and um, then started a few a co- company um, out of grad school at MIT and was in tech for gosh, over a decade when I had the opportunity to go back to academia and start a innovation center at MIT. And that's where I really discovered the excitement of and, and the joy of helping other people make impact. So I created a innovation center at MIT and then one at USC. And that's where I had started TEDx USC, which was the first ever TEDx, and realized the the power and of being able to help people tell their stories, build community, and help people start companies, whether they're faculty, students, whoever. And now I'm focusing on more on the manufacturing side of things. I was working for uh, Mayor Garcetti as in LA as the entrepreneur in residence and discovered this opportunity, this undiscovered, untapped opportunity of the largest manufacturing center in the country. Most people don't know that LA is the largest manufacturing center in the country, but it's not connected and not celebrated as much as tech in Hollywood. So that's why. Yeah, it's not that they don't know that, it's that they wouldn't put uh, LA on the list of the <laughs> <It's>... top 25. <laughs> Yeah, I thought we had to the Midwest for that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and people think, oh, L.A. is just about Hollywood and about entertainment. But in fact, for every job in film and television in L.A., there's four jobs in manufacturing. So it's a huge part of our economy here. 
So that's that's why I started Make It in LA, which is a nonprofit, which is building community among, uh, especially the entrepreneurial community, uh, new brands, emerging uh, businesses, and founders, and also established CEOs as well, and helping connect them. And then I also founded and host this podcast called The Art of Manufacturing, where I help with all the amazing people I meet through this process, I help to tell their stories. This is very cool. And I'm I'm really glad to be speaking with you today. I think... Uh, I, I think we have so much ground to cover, so I want to I, I want to dive right in to uh, the thing that we were chatting about in our kind of pre-show preamble, which we should record that secretly sometime, actually, because it could be. <laughs> but, um, where we were talking about the this notion of serious tinkering um, that you've been thinking about uh, tinkering and, on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's tinker about serious tinkering for a while. Sure. Sounds great. Um, Where do you want to start? What do you mean by it? Well, so I think that the people don't really appreciate the, the potential for tinkering. We think of it as more of like just this aimless play. But in fact, I think when I think back on two experiences that I had early, early on in my career, it helps really um, sparked this concept in my brain. One was I was in this class, this design, intro to design class at MIT. It was this famous class. It ends in this big robotics head-to-head battle, and it was really intimidating. And I got this box of parts. It was my junior year, and I had to build a robot out of this random box of parts. And I was completely just mystified and terrified. Like, how am I going to turn this into something that's going to win this contest? But it wasn't until I started playing and tinkering in the shop that I started seeing how the things put, um, you know, fit together. And I, once I start, stopped worrying about that goal, I stopped having the fear. And then as time went on, word around the machine shop was that I was going to win. The TV cameras start, actually started following me around. There was a, a TV show that was, you know, happening. It was great. And I, I ended up doing really well. I made it to the final round. And I, and I realized that there was this amazing power to just letting go of this outcome and allowing myself to tinker that it freed up my imagination and ability to innovate. But then the problem was that I was in for this rude awakening. Um, it wasn't the way things worked in the real world. So that my next job, my first job was working on the space shuttle main engine uh, in, in LA. And I had to build this calibration fixture for the robot. And the problem was that I wasn't allowed to go in the machine shop. So I had to draw, you know, design the parts and then send the drawings off to the machinist and the machine machinist would make it. So there's such a difference in those two different ways of thinking. And that's when I thought back to that, it made me realize that we're in this really interesting time right now where we've shifted in software, but it's now starting to happen in manufacturing as well, where there are these tools that allow more people to participate in the the product development and the manufacturing process and it's democratizing manufacturing and it also allows us to iterate really quickly on designs so it's not just that we're changing what we're making but it's changing who can participate in that process and how we innovate and i think it has a lot of implications in uh again not just what we make but you know, it, marketing as well. I think that it's really important to think about ways that we can in, involve marketing, sales, creative design, all those folks in that process of product development um, for the future. So it's, it's really exciting to me. 
they had this it's really exciting i mean i i i, I my mind is just spinning at this uh the the, the not just what happens that uh, that, that you can iterate faster or, 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 you know, do develop product enhancements in a, in either a faster or more effective way with this. But, but the fact that the actual, that, that, that the outcomes fundamentally change and the process is fundamentally different because more people are included in it. Um, that, the, that, the, that that's a, a bit of that uh, pickle cucumber moment where the, the pickle can't become a cucumber again. Uh, th- this notion that 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 it it it, it the inclusion of it, it's facilitating the inclusion of more people into the process, and that bringing more people into it will fundamentally change the process and its outcomes to a point where it will be in some ways unrecognizable from what it was before. For sure, uh, and I just think that there, you know, you have you have more people from different diverse backgrounds that are participating, um, and I think that uh, you know there's. A, good example is, uh, can I tell a story about a company, an, an underwear company, which is based here in LA, Me Undies. I don't know if you've heard of it, but- I am presently wearing Me Undies. Are I you serious? You, that's the first time I've disclosed underwear <laughs> preference on this podcast. I don't know. I, is that appropriate to talk about on the show? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it'll impact our rating or not, um, but <laughs> Things uh, can only go up. Look, let's see how it goes. Well, for the- well, for people who don't know, MeUndies is a direct-to-consumer underwear brand, and they present they they uh, brand themselves as being super comfortable. And but they also have these different designs that come out every month, and that was a new development over time. It didn't start out that way, uh, but there's as an example, they use this program, this platform called Lumi for their packaging, and that when they use Lumi, they can. Uh, Lumi has figured out the whole back-end supply chain, negotiated bulk, you know, uh, cost with their suppliers, and they have a dashboard and they have tools that allow the marketing team to go in and change and tweak the package design. So it's as easy to tweak a package design as it is to say tweak your website or post something to social media. And so because of that, all of a sudden, it's you can try a holiday version. And so they started with Valentine's Day and then they realized, wow, that's really, that was really popular. And so not only was the product itself, they tried, you know, underwear with hearts on it, but then they put it in a special package. And for direct to consumer brands, the package is the first time they have a physical experience. They're not going into your store. So this is a really important part of the product. So people started posting on social media, posting not just the underwear, but the packaging as well. And so then it became this viral phenomenon and it made them realize like, wow, there's something to this. And so that's when they started creating more and more designs custom and now every month when the product team and the, the founders the ceo um, those folks get together to think about what the products are going to be next next month marketing creative design all those folks are all in that meeting where they didn't used to be because it was it's, they realized how integral everything was because they had the tools now to tinker with the packaging a physical good because now it's easier there's no there's little or no cost to making changes to the physical good. I think I'm just going to say that we got through uh, that description without making a direct 
package joke uh, about an underwear company. <laughs> now, now you. Well, I thought. I, I mean, yeah. I thought that was impressive, at least. Um, but it's it's interesting because MeUndies uses that. Um, they've they've used that as an excuse for communication too. Uh, um, I, I'm on their email list. I shall admit, and I get email from MeUndies. It feels like daily. Um, and they use they, they, they use their ability to, to 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 rapidly iterate both product design and package design as an excuse for communication. So it really does impact end to end. For sure, for sure. And yeah, it's not just that they. I think that um, they're just one example. So they're they're an example of how in an enterprise, people that don't normally participate in that product development process can now participate. There's also opportunities for entrepreneurs to participate that haven't participated as well. And so that creates a challenge to bigger established enterprises because now there's all these upstart brands or businesses that are able to develop products and iterate really quickly, meaning that they're getting a minimal viable product into the hands of their customer and getting feedback really quickly, whereas the the larger enterprises, established enterprises, have all the legacy to, to deal with. And so enterprises need to think about how they themselves can also iterate more quickly within. And that's that's something in software, a lot of people have heard of this, um, agile development, right? But that hasn't really transferred as much to the manufacturing realm as much. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, we're we're an agile marketing shop. We work with agile software mm. developers who provide software that we use and resell and, and all of that. But it's not the kind of thing that you see in the physical goods space mm. until now that we actually have these rapid prototyping tools and, and you know, 3D printing and, and other things that are becoming available that, like you said, democratize the process of creating something. You know, that, that design process has always kind of been the realm of, of one or two people, designers, engineers, you know, within an organization. So it's pretty interesting to hear, you know, that the people who make physical goods are able to take advantage of it, too. Yeah. And the whole idea of Agile is not just to iterate uh, internally, but then to be able to get the customer feedback, which means that marketing all the more has to be at the center of that iteration and of that innovation process. You're listening to The Cooler Ring, conversations on manufacturing marketing. Don't forget to subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolering. That's K-U-L-A-partners.com slash thecoolering. Well, I think you mentioned the upstarts, and um, I guess it just it, it occurred to me as you said that that, uh, that, that, that that they have an advantage in some way because... Um, you know, maybe they're not as uh, weighed down by the legacy processes and the legacy um, ways of thinking. And, and, and as as you were speaking about that, I was thinking, well, there's really, if you're an existing um, uh, manufacturer, there's really three ways that you can unlock value, if you will, in, in what you make. You can, you can change what you make you can innovate the product you can change how you make it arguably doing it more efficiently or what have you or you can change how it's sold or your, the connection in some way that you have with the with the buyer and and it seemed to me in that moment what you were saying is is that these new upstarts often come in and 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 they may not even uh, the, the, the how it's made or, or even the what they make 
uh, is in some way secondary because they maybe have a greater insight or instinct into how it's sold. That their connection to the buyer is potentially stronger. For sure. I mean, let's take the Andy's example. It, they they will do surveys on social media to say, well, should we do this one or should we do that one? What's more interesting? Should we do Star Wars or should we do Halloween or both? You know, and so they they can react to it. And then people feel more invested in the outcome. And this is true not just for consumer brands, but I think consumer brands do it very well. So I think that B2B um, businesses should look to consumer for some ideas on how they can get the customer invested because they feel like they've been the ones who helped create and design this product and now they're invested in it yeah i think there's so much talk in the world of b2b marketing and they they talk about b2b marketing uh, and b2b uh, buyers having b2c expectations and 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 i've i thought for a little bit that maybe that's a little backwards that or, or just kind of maybe we're thinking about that wrong and and that maybe what the difference is is that b2c brands are, have just been better at establishing and nurturing their direct connection to customers and the buyers. And that B2B brands are often a little more navel gazily, you know? Well, by in some extent, they have gazily to be. Gazily isn't a word. Yeah, Gazy, maybe. Yeah, navel gazy. But, I mean, to some extent, they have to be. Uh, you know, many B2B manufacturers, you know, do not have a direct connection to their customers. They sell through distributors or, you know, through outside sales or, or things like that. So they maybe they just don't feel like they have the opportunity to actually talk directly with the end customers. Or more, more, it's harder to develop that feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Z? Well, so I'm not a marketer, but I do uh, have seen a lot of uh, companies how they've engaged engaged with the customer through that process. And I think, I don't know what comes to mind at first. I mean, one is Intuit, for example, they have a whole customer development lab. I forget what they call it, but where they, it's in a whole building where they, they'll bring consumers in to play with different versions of their potential software and see, um, and different ideas that they have and then react to that. And so I think that, uh, there's no reason why just because you don't have the direct link to the customer, it definitely is more challenging, but that doesn't mean that you can't get your customer to be part of that, part of that process. It doesn't mean it's not worth going out and investing and creating that direct link and finding a way to do it. I oh, think yeah. that that's a, that, that's a, I think the important takeaway here is that, um, is that maybe B2B marketers, rather than just being obsessed with delivering B2C experiences, should maybe be a bit obsessed in developing customer or buyer feedback mechanisms that are as robust as B2C mm. brands. Yeah. Well, and I think that it, it also impacts. So what does that mean net, next? So what what's the logical extension of this feedback loop and this democratization of innovation is this um, every, everyone expects on-demand delivery now amazon has set this expectation with us <laughs> um, and i believe that long term there's gonna be more and more on-demand manufacturing so forget the warehouse you can actually get the factory that's localized right near you um, developing these products depends on the product you know some products are easier than others to manufacture on demand um, so I don't know. Again, I don't know about the the B two B side of things, but the, the, there have been some examples of B two C uh, custom on demand that technically have been figured out. They're figuring it out. Uh, in fact, 
it's actually not, it's not the physical, it's not the technology piece of it. That's the hardest. It's going to be the human side of it, because I think it's hard on the organization, this iteration process, and to let go of the reins and to figure out also, it's hard on the consumer or the customer. It's like, how do you, how do you give them the tools so that they're not overwhelmed with the choices? Because you as the organization is the one that's the expert. So in the future, we need to figure out different, you know, sort of AI, big, big data, et cetera, that's going to give the tools, just enough of the tools to the customer to be able to say, this is exactly what I want and I want it now. Yeah, wow. And, and I want to go back to something you just mentioned in there, you know, this idea that it's hard on the organization to implement this level of agility. Um we know I, I've given several talks in the past on implementing agile within an agency. And one of the biggest questions that I get from agency owners and project managers is like, how do I introduce this to my people so that they accept it as a better way of working and that they don't just see that a process is being forced on them? Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to try and think about how a manufacturing organization might think about that. Well, my goodness, if that's the case for a, say, a 25 or 40 person or what have you, marketing agency, yeah. and they're, they're struggling with change management. Uh, you can imagine a 5,000 person manufacturing organization where they would be. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's hard. And I think that um, we need to think about what the... Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely very challenging because you you need to put off the decision making. Uh, you need to be able to um, not focus on always having the answer right away, and you have to involve more people in the process, and you have to be more comfortable with ambiguity, which people are not comfortable with ambiguity. But that comes from the top, so that's really a, a cultural. Um, change that needs to be patterned by the the leaders in the organization and that's the most important piece man comfort with ambiguity does not <laughs> seem to be how most folks would describe the c-suite of uh American manufacturing organization <laughs> well there's so much of a focus on KPIs and you know, understandably, you know, manufacturing has been really, there's been a lot of emphasis on becoming more and more efficient, especially because of, you know, we need to pull out as many costs out of the equation as possible because competition, especially overseas, can undercut the cost. But in the future, I think that the the agility and the, the kind of the creativity is where, and I don't know who, is your audience mainly, is it mainly in North America or is it global? Mainly North America. But this is the yes. yeah. It's 2019. It can go beyond there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, regardless, I think that wherever you are, you want to try to bring manufacturing local as much as possible because it actually creates, it, it, it keeps the innovation local. It's better for kind of your own national security because it keeps your means of production under your control. Um, and it's just a better it's better for manufacturing all around. And so I think that that's where we have, but as North America anyway, we have the advantage is with those advanced technologies, with the creativity and with that innovation and trying to keep that here for sure. Like this is, this is the way to do it. I think it's a, it's a real uh, call to action that you're, um, you're putting out uh, for our first uh, episode of the new year, uh, this notion of 
um, that in order to really succeed in the future of manufacturing, that uh, today's manufacturers need to get uh, much more comfortable uh, with the unknown, more comfortable with ambiguity, and, and embrace that not everything uh, is, um, is going to be reflected in the KPIs. For sure. Yeah, and I just think there's so much of an emphasis on cost-cutting, cost-cutting, and being an innovation person myself, and I've been that innovation person at a couple of universities where you know, whenever there was a time when I had to deliver on KPIs, it became really hard for me to to show the ROI on investing in innovative things. And so then you end up cutting that innovation when you're so focused on just becoming more and more efficient. And the truth is that the second law of thermodynamics will tell you that um, being super efficient is the opposite of having that um, sort of nimbleness and agility. Uh, so I think that if we really want to take advantage of that resilience, how I might say, then we need to go up higher on the food chain and go for things where creativity is really important. And it's already happening. So there was a, a McKinsey uh, back in, I think, October, there was a McKinsey study that came out for they were interviewing global apparel manufacturers. And 80% of these manufacturers said that they plan to nearshore or reshore manufacturing in the next few years because they wanted to have speed to market. They wanted to be able to respond to trends much more quickly. So there's a huge advantage there. And I think, you know, you don't, when you're looking for a restaurant, <laughs> your favorite restaurant, you're not going to go for the cheapest necessarily. Sometimes you want the best or sometimes you want something that's unique or whatever. So let's take advantage of what we're the best at. Yeah, well, the, the implications for marketers in the middle of that is, it's, is vast because, of course, if you're manufacturing uh, closer to your customer because you want to be more responsive to that customer dynamic, that is in, by its very nature a marketing and sales decision. Absolutely. Uh, more than it is a, a production one. And uh, and that's going to, uh, uh, it's really, it's it's going to call upon marketers to get mu- much closer to uh, to to other aspects of the manufacturing enterprise than they maybe have been in the past. Well, and I may also, I want to caution that I was talking a lot about comparing that to cost. There's also a myth that it's more expensive to manufacture locally when in fact, when you look at the total cost of ownership, that's not always the case either. So I just, I want to make sure that I'm not <laughs> falling into that myth or, you know, reinforcing that myth as well. Understood. And uh, actually, that was a, a, a lovely article that you, you had uh, last year um, in Forbes uh, surrounding the, the myths about manufacturing. And uh, you addressed that one head on. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the, and I, I thought as well, it was interesting to just turn it on its ear a bit where people talk a lot about the uh, um, the, the manufacturing uh, jobs and the the difference between skill shortage and job shortage etc I think in some ways um, uh, you know it, it plays into what we're talking about throughout this 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 episode where basically what we perceive to be the re- reality of manufacturing um, isn't. I mean, when we started this podcast, uh, there's at least two people on it that wouldn't have thought um, LA was uh, the manufacturing uh, epicenter of America. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I just, I want to say that there's just so many myths about manufacturing. And I think that if we want to see manufacturing, 
just as vibrant as it can be. I think that as a as as a society, we need to value it more. I mean, so, certain societies, Germany values it a lot, of course, and, and Asia values it, of course. And it's just the backbone of the innovation uh, that we produce. And we think of innovation as being all about digital and tech, you know, as in the digital side. And we really don't think about, you know, in our, we don't want our kids to be in manufacturing when in fact, there's going to be potentially 2 million jobs opening up in the next less than decade because of the, the many different factors. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of potential that we're just missing. It's a lot of potential and it's an exciting time because of course, t- tomorrow's manufacturing jobs aren't the same as the ones 10 years ago or, or, or several decades ago. It's not the, uh, the hard physical labor that many people associate that with, which of course drives uh, some of the attitudes that you were just mentioning. And I think it's an exciting time for marketers as well, because it, that, this notion of, uh, of, of, of product development, um, uh, production and marketing and sales being uh, more tightly integrated in the agile manufacturer. Uh, my goodness, if we can get there over the next uh, decade, I think it's an exciting time for everyone involved. Yeah, and I think that the the, the future, the, the skills, I mean, for sure, there's going to be a lot of STEM jobs out there. But with this new model where, you know, serious tinkering and even looking forward to this custom on demand, design is going to be what it's all about. And so I think that if folks in marketing were to bone up more on that, the empathy, the collaboration and the creativity skills, those are going to be the most important key skills in the 21st century workplace. And those skills can't be automated. We're going to be working with other new tools, big data, automation, machine learning. It's going to be a collaborative effort. But as long as we have those kinds of skills, I think that um, marketing is going to be really important. Well, and marketers are going to need to know how to do pretty much the exact same thing with the content they're creating, with the marketing strategies they're developing, and with the work that they do in conjunction with sales. They're going to have to be functioning in much the same way as what you just described. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It's an exciting time. <laughs> it is for sure. Z, it's been fantastic uh, tinkering about uh, serious tinkering with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New New Year Year to you as well. well. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.